to talk about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, there are about three to four places in the Bible where it explicitly tells us what it means to live a Christian life. One of them is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we have two accounts, a little background on it. We have two accounts of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, one of them is found in Matthew. That's the one we saw in the video. And the other one is in the book of Luke, Luke's account, which we will read in a bit. Um, there are a few differences between these two accounts. For example, in Matthew, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. And in Luke, he says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Woe to the rich. Uh, it's pretty more direct, right? Aggressive. Uh, <laughs> so it's, it's the le- less popular one. Um, but at the same time, there are a lot of differences. At the same time, there's one obvious similarity between these two accounts. And the similarity is that they're both associated with a mountain. And this is important. In Matthew, he says Jesus went up the mountain. In Luke, he says Jesus came down. And this is important because throughout history, mountains were significant for two reasons. Number one, it meant that there was a large crowd. You see, before the inventions of microphones and speakers, if you had a large crowd following you, then you had to go somewhere higher. You had to be higher than the people that are listening to you. And so Jesus, seeing the thousands of people that were following him, the crowd, he went up the mountain. And second reason is that mountains are places where people would usually go to hide. For example, King David, he hid from Saul by, by going to the mountain. And, and these were places where people would hide. So th- they were usually people that were wanted by, by the king or, or they were wanted by the state. They were enemies of the king. And, and so these speeches would generally be about overthrowing the kingdom and establishing a new kingdom or establishing a new administrator. You see, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was actually not too different. He was talking about establishing a new kingdom, his father's kingdom. And when people ask him, what what is your father's kingdom? Like throughout the sermon, he says something really radical. He says, take everything that you know, that the world values, and flip it on its head, right? Right? So Jesus was saying, it's not the rich, but the poor. It's not the strong, but the weak that will, who will enter my Father's kingdom. You see, it was radical, and it shocked the audience, the people listening. And even to this day, when we read it, it shocks us as listeners. Uh, someone once criticized C.S. Lewis for not caring about the Sermon on the Mount. I love his reply. He said, as to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, If caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a deadlier spiritual condition than that of a man who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. So I want to focus today on on this sermon. Uh, Actually, this Sermon on the Mount is rich, it's full of insights, so I know I won't be able to cover it. So I just want to focus on the first one, the first beatitude or the first blessing where Jesus says, uh, blessed are the poor. What kind of poverty is Jesus talking about here? What does he mean when he says blessed are the poor? Let's look into two types of poverty. The first one is economical poverty. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Luke 6, 17 to 26? Let's look into Luke's account of this sermon. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have it up on the screen too. Luke 6, 17 to 26. 
Let's read. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled with impure spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So we, as, as humans, are creatures of comfort. We naturally drift towards comfort. We fight and search comfort. And in our search and pursuit of comfort, we've seen growth, especially advancement in the technology, right, uh, in the past decade. Uh, I remember in 93, my, my dad, we're from India, so my, my dad was in the United States, and that was his first time being in America. And we were still in, in India. I was two years old, and my dad would tell us now how he would write us letters. It would take a month to reach us in India, and he would wait another month to, to hear back from us to get a response. But you see, with the advancement of technology, now I can go home even tonight and pull out my phone and with a click of button, call my family halfway across the wall and talk to them as if they're right next to me. Technology has made our world smaller, but at the same time, we've never been as disconnected as we are now. And I'm a millennial, right? So this is not a bash on technology. Like, I grew up in technology. I, I love it. I flourish in it. In fact, my, my degree, in, in my bachelor's degree was in sound recording, sound engineering. So, so especially when it comes to worship, I love the implementation of technology, production, lights, good sound. But I'm afraid that in, in our pursuit of it, that, that if we're not careful as Christians, then we might lose the value of being silent and also being still before God. Amen. And as, as technology has progressed, our city lights, our lights have gotten brighter and brighter in our cities, right? And, and the night sky has gotten dimmer and dimmer. And I remember talking to Uva, actually, about night photography, about uh, photography where we capture the stars. And we were just saying, like, how, how sad it is how you have to drive so far away now to even capture that. Like, you have to go up in the mountains, I remember the last time I saw uh, the Milky Way was uh, when, when I was in India. And I remember looking up, and two things happened. The first one was I was in awe that the God that made all this would know my name, like he cares about me, like personally. And secondly, I felt small, right? I, I recognized how small I was and how much of my own life I don't have control of, that God is the one who controls every breath that I take. And you see, that's what Jesus was trying to address here. When Jesus said, blessed are the poor, he's not saying blessed. He's saying blessed are the poor because they recognize that every moment of their lives, they are small. That every moment of their lives, they have to depend on my Father. You see, in God's presence, we feel small because we are small. I want to clear something here, though, before I go any further. Jesus is not against wealth, necessarily. 
nor is he for poverty. Right? So, so Jesus is not, he's, he's more concerned. He's not really concerned about the financial condition of a person as much as he's concerned about the heart of that person. When Jesus was preaching this sermon, he knew more than anyone else in this world the, the heart of a human, right? The heart of man. When he was preaching this sermon, he knew that in times of comfort, our natural tendency as humans are, has never been to drift towards God. It has always been to drift away from him. I mean, you, you read the Bible, you look at the Israelites, they were God's people. In times of comfort, their natural tendency was never, I'm going to worship this God even more. It has always been, I'm going to worship these other idols. So what is then our response as Christians for us, especially who have been blessed with so much, what is our response to comfort? Number one, we don't seek comfort, we seek truth. C.S. Lewis once wrote, If you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. If you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth, only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin, and in the end, despair. When we say blessed are the poor, we're not saying blessed are the poor because they will be made rich, that, that God wants you to be rich or God wants you to, to be comfortable. Like, no, the purpose of this verse is not to tell you that you can be rich. The purpose of this verse is to remind us that we've already been made rich in Christ. Amen. Right? Amen. Uh, the second one is we pursue generosity as people of God. Uh, there's a misunderstanding about generosity that I want to clear too. Oftentimes, we think generosity means looking at ourselves and saying, man, I got so much, right? Like, like I, I've been given so much, so I have to give it out. You see, that, that's not where generosity comes for the people of God. The heart of generosity for the people of God comes by recognizing God's generosity towards us. When we recognize God's grace in our lives, we become generous people out of the gratitude, right? So when, when grace happens, generosity happens as well. Grace will always, always be followed by generosity. The second type of poverty, spiritual poverty. When Jesus was preaching this sermon, I can just imagine him. He's, he was looking out in the crowd. He saw the rich to whom he said, blessed are the poor. He saw the poor to whom he says, blessed are the poor. He saw the Pharisees to whom he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The Pharisees were people who, who thought they were spiritually rich. They, they thought their good works, their good moral standing, and their righteousness was enough to enter the Father's kingdom, to enter God's kingdom. You see, Jesus was saying, no, no, you got it all wrong. In order to enter my Father's kingdom, you have to be spiritually poor. So then what does it mean to be spiritually poor? To be spiritually poor means to stand before God, empty, and to see ourselves as God sees us broken and sinful and to recognize our desperate need for God's love and our desperate need for God's forgiveness. 
Whenever I tell, uh, not whenever, sometimes, uh, when I tell people uh, I'm from India, uh, I usually sometimes get, get a response like, man, Toshi, you're so lucky, like you're from India, uh, you come from a third world country, you've seen what real poverty is like, so when you're here in America, I'm sure you value some of the things that we Americans take for granted, because you've seen real poverty. And it's true, I have seen real poverty. I've seen what it really means to have nothing. But at the same time, I wouldn't be wrong if I say there are times I feel like I've seen more poverty in America than I've seen in India. In my eight years here, I've lived in different homes with different families. And I've been in homes where where husbands will no longer love their wives like Christ loved the church, and there's just disconnection. I've been in homes where wives will no longer talk to their husbands or love their husbands like Christ loves the church. I've been in homes where children are so disconnected from their parents that there's no longer communication, there's no longer love. The big cars and the big houses does not solve the kind of poverty that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus was trying to say there's a greater kind of poverty that you have to understand. Spiritual poverty. There's a a story of a French journalist. Before I say that, I wanna I wanna say that that oftentimes I feel like we 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 don't see this, but the poorest people I know or the poorest people we see, or the poorest homes that I know are not homes without roof on their heads or, or food on their table. The poorest homes I know are homes that no longer have love in it, that no longer have Christ in the center of it. There's a beautiful story of a French journalist. He, he came to America in the 20th century early 20th century, uh, there was a time when America was growing and become, becoming a nation that was different from other nations. And so this French journalist, he, he sailed all the way from France and he came to America to, to document and to do a research to, as to why America was great, right? What, what made America great? So that was his research. It was in the early 20th century. And so he, he came to America. At First of all, he went to Washington, D.C., and he saw the senators and all the people, the, the, the House of Representatives, all in the parliament, and they were arguing and they were debating, and he wrote down, he was fascinated, and he wrote down, actually what makes America great are the senators and the people in the White House and the people in the parliament. Then he went to Virginia, he saw uh, the ships and the naval fleet and the military that America had, and he wrote down, actually, it's, it's the military, the, the number of ships and military that they have that makes America great. He kept traveling, he went to the south, and he saw industries and factories, and he wrote, actually, it's the industries and how fast they produce these goods that makes America great. He went to the West Coast and to the middle, and he saw like the railroads and, and, and like how it connects the whole country. And he wrote, actually, it's the transportation system and the railroads and how fast they, they ship these goods. And they take it from one end to the other that makes America great. So, so throughout months, he traveled throughout the country, and he wrote down what makes America great. At the end of his trip, he stopped by a farm 
and he was invited by a farmer to come in the house and, and spend the night there. At dinner time, the man of the house, the father, calls his family, calls his wife, his children, and they hold hands, and they get on their knees, and they pray together. The next day, the French journalist wrote, actually, what makes America great is not the senators, the military, or, or the railroads, or the factories. What makes America great are families that every single night come together and kneel down and pray to God. I want to ask today, is that a familiar image that we see in our houses every night? Parents that know what it means to be spiritually poor will every single night have, have on one side their spouse's hand and have on one side their children's hand and pray, come before God and pray together. Is that a familiar image that we see in our homes? I want to call up the, the worship team um, I just want to end with a story today. When, when I was in college, uh, my first day of college, my parents were dropping me off and they were going back to India. And I remember they were like freshmen and parents crying. Children were crying, mostly girls but even the boys were crying on the inside. <laughs> and I remember my roommate was Logan. He was from Nebraska. And his mom was just tearing up, saying, son, I'm going to see you in Thanksgiving. My mom looks at me and says, son, I might see you in a year or I might see you in four years. Um, but know that I love you and God is there for you. Logan's mom heard my mom say that. And she looks at her and says, hey, don't worry. I'm going to take care of your son. I'm going to look after him, and he's always going to have a home here. Don't worry. I'm going to invite him to my house. And she did. I went home that Thanksgiving with Logan to Nebraska. And, and then I went the next summer, and she took care of me. She, she loved me, and she took me in as one of her own, and she loved me. And she, at one point, she even said, I'm going to be your U.S. mom. Like, I know you have a mom in India, but I'm going to be your U.S. mom. Two years ago, she was diagnosed with cancer. And I graduated from college, and I started a job, and I got my first salary. And I, 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 when I heard the news, I wrote to her. I said, Claude, that's her name, Claude. Thank you for all these years for being my mom. Thank you for loving me like your own son. Thank you for giving me a home when I didn't have one. I just got my first salary, and I want to give you part of it just, just as a sign of gratitude, as, just as a way of saying thank you. She replied back to me the week after, and two weeks later, she passed away. And she said to me in, in her letter, she said, thank you so much for the check, but Toshi, I cannot accept it. But know that the love and the kindness that I've shown you for, by taking you in and by treating you as my own, know that and I hope that one day you will be able to do the same for someone else. I'm paying it forward, expecting you to do the same to someone else. 
when we understand what Christ did for us on the cross, that he died for us while we're still sinful, while we're still his enemy, that Christ came down and died for our sins, when we understand God's grace, we'll make sure that we don't keep it to ourselves, right? That's why we do missions. That's why we evangelize. I want to end with this point. When we begin to see the value of the gospel, we begin to share the value of the gospel. I pray that we be a church that understands what it means to be spiritually poor, that we are a church that understands the magnitude of grace. Will you stand with me as I pray? Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that we might be generous people, not just generous with our money or what we have, but also generous with the gospel. Lord, I pray that will you uh, touch our, our and be with our families here today in our homes, that you become the center of our homes, that you become the thing that is most important in our lives and in our homes, Lord. Will you heal our homes? And will you allow us to focus more on you each day? We love you, we thank you, and we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.